Direction point. Direction point. A Doctor Who Podcast Network. Well, hi everybody. Welcome back to Doctor Who Literature, the podcast taking you through the world of the Doctor Who novelizations put out by Target Books from 1973 onward in publication order. We're a member of the Direction Point Doctor Who Podcast Network. My name is Jason, and I'm your host on this journey, this very long journey. This has been an interesting week, personally. I had a terrific time at the LI Who convention last weekend, appearing on seven different fan panels and conducting two guest interviews, as well as meeting up with several friends, old and new, including past Doctor Who literature guests, some of whom you'll hear from in a moment. However, I also contracted COVID, probably at the convention, and I have no voice this week, to the extent that I've hired an actor to play me for this episode. So our regularly scheduled episode, 88, Doctor Who the Aztecs, will be pushed back a week until my own voice returns, and I will instead air, ahead of schedule, the audio of two of L.I. Who panels I moderated. The guest interviews will follow at a later date. Without much major news in the worlds of Doctor Who this week, let's get to it. You were invited on an adventure across all of time and space, in a completely random order. It's the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast. Jump in the TARDIS with your hosts, Eric Goldbranson, Asad Khashki, and Matthew Kressel. Explore Doctor Who TV stories, audio adventures, and books, both novels and non-fiction. The Police Box in the Junkyard podcast. It's the entire Hooniverse. On Shuffle, the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast is a member of the Direction Point Network and is available about once a month wherever you find your podcasts. You are listening to the Doctor Who Literature podcast. With Doctor Who's 60th anniversary approaching, and it was confirmed this week that the anniversary specials will air in November 2023, I've been thinking for a while about what my top 60 TV episodes would be of the entire series, both classic and new. When Ally Who opened solicitations for panels for the 2023 con, I pitched the idea of a top 60 panel, both hoping that it would be picked up so I'd have a motivation to organise my own top 60, and hoping that it wouldn't get picked up so I could avoid the task entirely. Well, Billy from Eli Who liked the idea and scheduled a panel with me and five other guests. I did come up with my own personal top 60 list, thereby hangs a tale, and that will be a separate episode this coming November. But this panel was about a broader cross-section of fandom, crowdsourcing the top 60, you might say. The idea is that everybody on the panel would name a top story in turn and explain why in 45 seconds. This idea sounds much better on paper than it did in practice. We ended up with more than 60 stories and the 45 second rule, to quote the Bard, was honoured more in the breach than in the observance. Still, the stories picked are a terrific cross-section of the entire series 1963 through 2022, and you'll note an interesting trend in the ratio between classic and new Who's stories. Apart from me, Jason, speaking to you from last Sunday when I still had a voice, you'll also hear from the following over the next 50 minutes. Keir Hansen from the Gallifrey Public Radio podcast, Drew Mayer, co-host of the Who and Company podcast, Jodie Harkavy, a Doctor Who fan from New York City, Hannah Long, a freelance writer and Doctor Who literature guest from episode 15, 
and Jan Fennick, a writer, Doctor Who literature guest from episode 31 and many episodes of Trap One. Those are the guests, and these are their stories. How many of these stories are in your top 60? Welcome everybody to the top 60 greatest Doctor Who TV serials of all time. I have assembled a crack team of experts and we are going to, in the span of 45 seconds each, name one of our favorite stories. There are going to be six of us all together, so each of us will have a chance to name 10 stories. We will each have 45 seconds approximately to explain why this is our favorite story. As um, you know, many of us may have the same stories on our list, so after you name the story that is your favorite. So, for example, if Meglos is your favorite, and it probably won't be, anyone else who has Meglos on the list will, sh will shout out Snap, and then you and the audience can do that too if it's one of your favorites. We want as much audience participation and volume as possible. So, going around the table... Your name, one or two brief sentences about you, and we'll get started as quickly as possible. Starting with you, Kier. Uh, Kier Hansen, uh, host and producer of Gallifrey Public Radio. Um, yes, I talk too much into a box. Um, yeah, you want anything else on that? That's great. We'll go around here. Drew Meyer, uh, co-host of Who and Company, uh, co-host of the Doctor Who podcast, occasional representative of uh, Doctor Who Reality Bomb. Occasional? You've been on like every episode. <laughs> I missed the first 40, but yeah. <laughs> there was also one I missed because I had laryngitis. But go ahead. Jody Harkavy, fan. <laughs> <laughs> Jason Miller, I am the host and producer of Doctor Who Literature, a Target book podcast, and I am a co-host and producer on the Trap One podcast. I'm Hannah Long. I am a freelance writer on pop culture, among other places, The Bulwark and The Dispatch, different places. And we are going to be joined very shortly by Jan Fennick, who is an author and podcast guest. She is on staff, and she's attending to staff responsibilities, so she will be joining us shortly. Kier has to leave early as well. What we're going to do from this point on, starting with Hannah to my left, we're going to go around the table. We're each going to name one. Shout out Snap if it's on your list. Hannah will in about 45 seconds explain why. And then Kier has to leave early, so Kira's going to do all 10 in about 8 minutes. And yeah. then he's going to bolt. Oh, I won't even need that much time. All right. No, I do have a question. <laughs> what if we can summon up in like a word or two? Do we just... What would we let you know that we're done? We don't need 45 seconds. Most of us are podcasters or writers. Brevity is unknown to us. <laughs> okay, so I'll be the shortest, everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. You, can, you can yield. If for, for example, if you want to say, my favorite story of all time is the Space Pirates, enough said. That'll work. <laughs> said nobody ever. All right. <laughs> Drew is going to be our scorekeeper. He will let us know if some we, none, none of us can duplicate. So if Hannah says my favorite story of all time is um, Time Lash, nobody else can say Time Lash for the rest of the hour. Oh, you, you're making these as jokes. You are going to be so interested. <laughs> oh, uh, this is the point. The point is diversity, strange <laughs> ideas. Uh, Sean Lyon was supposed to join us. He had to leave early to go back to Los Angeles for the hurricane. I've seen his list. There are some head scratchers on there, but Sean will have a chance on my show to talk about those at a later date. Hannah, starting with you. You know, I was going to start with a weird one, but since I'm going first, I'm just going to go right for the empty child, which is my favorite story of all time. Snap. 
Then <laughs> mostly just the, the two-parter in general. There's, uh, I'm going to throw a definition in here. Tolkien once described the opposite of a catastrophe as a eucatastrophe, a sudden joyous turning, where the story suddenly, and everything is so dark, and then a light comes out of nowhere. And I think this one just has one of the most beautiful examples of that, especially early in the show when there's so much sort of angst about the time war and Eccleston just has so much weight on him and there's just such a joyful moment and everybody lives. So that's that's why that one is my favorite. Um, and then uh, I'm going to go to the opposite extreme and say Fury in the Deep, which is one of my favorite missing episodes and I have quote unquote watched all of them through uh, Telesnap editions. And it's, it's just, it's one of those where even if it is in Telesnap, it's just gripping, it's engrossing, it's scary at times. The, the only parts that exist are the parts that were cut out, censored out of the Australian version, and so it's just all the creepy bits. Um, but uh, uh, okay, you know, I will say it. belatedly, snap to Fury from the Deep. Anybody else? Why did snap to the other one? All right, so let's go um, around the table then, and then we'll get to Kier. Okay. I'm going to start from my number one rather than my number sixty, just so we get the, the big names out of the way. My favorite story of all time is Legopolis. Yeah. All right, we got some snaps out of the audience. Tom Baker's final story, Peter Grimwade as director. You have three virtually brand new companions. It is probably about as good as Matthew Waterhouse ever was during his two years in the role. John Fraser, who was a... Oh, Chris, come on. John Fraser as the monitor is one of the most interesting guest actors. It's his only Doctor Who role, but he had been a big movie star in the early 1960s doing a lot of films with Dirk Bogard. He's showing up as an alien scientist with a protruding brain, and he gets to deliver a lot of weighty dialogue about entropy. I think it's a fascinating performance. Plus, the regeneration scene is just phenomenally staged. You have the flashbacks to the previous companions and the Doctor's favorite villains. And then Peter Davison sits up. It's, it's a whole new era. Patty Kingsland's score for Legopolis is always circling in my head on any given day. So for me, that's as good as Doctor Who gets. Moving on to fan, uh, Jody. I am going with Enemy of the World. Snap. Um, <laughs> one, of, one of my favorite um, stories of all time. Um, Patrick Troughton is incredible in this dual role. It's fun when they're working with the spies to kind of find out, um, to, to prove that that salamander is behind all this. And, and to me, it's just brilliant. Drew. The Romans. <laughs> Snap. <laughs> Hey, you've got a new companion. You know what we should do? We should go find a body and then steal their instruments, pretend we're a musician, go to Rome, have, in, uh, like, madcap Zeus ends up with a, a city burning completely to the ground, but also you've got uh, slavery, gladiatorial battles, and, and this is going to wrap this one up because it's the most important uh, Ian and Barbara have sex. Whoa! <laughs> In this economy? No. <laughs> All right, Jan is here. Jan, introduce yourself in one or two sentences and give us one of your top 60. Okay. Hopefully, I'm not doing any one that anybody else said. It's on. Well, it was late. Sorry. We'll blame it on Sasha Dewan. Um, hi, I'm Jan Fennick. I am a writer. Um, I am in every issue, every issue, every edition of Outside In that has come out so far. Um, I write books on dolls and doll collecting. Um, I do podcasts. I've been a guest host on several Jasons, and I also I do cosplay. And I on the I run the cosplay track here, and I also do that at Gallifrey One. So, 
Okay, my top one, hopefully nobody said it, is Heaven Sent, which I, ah, I think that's actually one of the greatest hours of television anywhere, anytime, not even just Doctor Who. But it's definitely up there with Doctor Who because he's like Peter Capaldi. I mean, it's a one-man show, basically. And his performance is just absolutely mind-blowing to me. And, you know, then you've got the scary, because when you, the first time you see it, you don't know what the hell is going on. The way it's written, just Moffat did, like, a brilliant script. Rachel Salali is one of my favorite directors, and I think she just got to the heart of the matter. And I remember before the show aired, she actually had posted something with like some squiggles and saying, I'm trying to figure out spaghetti, which I guess was her way of saying <laughs> that she was trying to unravel and make everything work the way it should for the story. So just the fact that the doctor is, it, it's, you know, basically, you know, a metaphor of grief, a metaphor of trying to get your life together and figuring out what's going on and just how lost he, how lost the doctor is. We never really see that level of grief and, 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 and internal dialogue for the doctor because normally even when he's sad about somebody going, maybe they'll say something but and it's kind of there, but this is like a full hour of just that exploration. And I just think it's one of those things that, you know, like I said, it's one of the finest pieces of television I've ever seen. All right, uh, Kier, we're going to lose you soon. Kier's going to do all ten in a row. I have no idea what order these are in, so I just asked them to be shuffled. So uh, they are <laughs> by no means uh, by preference rank uh, or chronological rank anymore. Oh, and you have, you have seven and a half minutes, so you can do long for some, short for others. All right. Spyfall Part 1. All right. Snap. Reason being, this is possibly, arguably, one of the best master reveals ever filmed for this program. Uh, from script to performance to the integration of the props, as we have learned over the course of this weekend, there was such a commitment by all teams involved to put 110% into the cleverness of, of this particular execution. It just you, you can't walk away from it. Uh, down to the down to the the, the headrest slips on the on the seatbacks of the airliner and things like that. And given a a well, an attempted stealthy party crashing, uh, gunfights th uh, on speeding vehicles through a vineyard, and then this uh, this mind bender twist. It is, it felt to me more Ian Fleming than a lot of the Pertwee era, and that was supposed to be your Bond doctor. So, excellent execution on that one. What did she give me next? Oh, hey, hey, all right. Uh, the year, 1973. Uh, Carnival of Monsters. Oh, snap. All right. This is Incredible Journey meets Groundhog Day with a laundry list of sci-fi tropes that Robert Holmes just keeps cramming into it repeatedly. Uh, Katie is brilliant. Woo! This is possibly Joe Grant's finest because she just gets to be 500% Katie in Joe on this one. To this day. Um, having Ian Martyr as the not Harry Sullivan, that's a nice little tip. I love having that little tip in and if you ended up seeing a lot of the classics out of sequence, having that kind of stumble with you is something unexpectedly enjoyable about the story. Uh, best costumes ever. I love the costume work in this story. It's absolutely phenomenal. And the, I, I know I'm supposed to call them Jurassic but the dish rags are adorable <laughs> too. I love the dish rags. All right. Kier's oh, first two stories both star guests at L.I. Who this weekend. Yeah, oh, he's noticed a trend. Uh, all right, 1971, Claws of Axos. All right, reason being, and I know this may be a little bit unconventional, but this is one of those instances where I enjoy stories where your uh, your 
expected protagonist and antagonist have to work in tandem reluctantly for the case of that story. This is a Holmes and Moriarty thing or, or what have you against that common adversary. And all throughout, the efforts are being thwarted on, from both our titular character and by their frenemy by the stupidity and greed of humans. So hey, how can you go wrong with a story like that? Uh, and also, so you've got the electropasta beasts. And they're thought that's <laughs> Supersized frogs, always gonna be a plus in classic Who. And country bumpkins riding their bikes into freezing creeks. So that's great. That's a, just a great little character actor on that one. And you just got to be, you love them country bumpkins. I, I, I absolutely love that portrayal. Phew, robot. Ooh. Yeah. Not a snap, it could have been. Yeah, okay, so this is uh, a, an incredible showing for Baker's introduction here. Um, uh, color separation overlay being what it is at certain moments, you, you let all that go because you're absolutely riveted to this batshit bonkers interpretation of the new doctor who is making the Briggs life insufferable because the persona change and you're throwing this against a character uh, you know, the brig being near and dear to my heart but being such a lovely analog for the for the the your more stoic viewers of the show who are just trying to appreciate oh this is a bit madcap isn't it you haven't seen anything yet during the birthday era because here comes this lunatic who's falling asleep in the middle of gun chases and all kinds of things going on and it's absolutely wonderful in that regard Sladen transitions so beautifully from counterpart leads in this and, and watching Sarah Jane trying to figure out what her attachment to this new persona is, is masterful work from her, and I absolutely appreciate that. And Benton. Um, <laughs> dear baby Benton. That's, uh, it's, it was just a great story. Uh, Stones of Blood. And the reason why, I'm gonna, I had some notes on this, but I'm going to jump to one of my last things on here, and that's the fact that Professor Rumford is possibly one of the best single-story character actors in the classic story. Oh, yeah. And I could, ha I could have her come back for anything. I wanted to know so much more about her. Um, and, and I had a feeling that there was, some extra, there was some extra bits of the representation and things going on there that were being alluded to. Uh, I love that, too. Being part of the key to time mark already sets this one up because the viewership was high, the interest was high, and the story kind of picks up some of its energy from that. You know, they know kind of all eyes on us, so we're, we're putting effort into this. But the, the wild left turn in the story where you think you're dealing with some sort of druidic deity thing and all of a sudden you're doing courtroom in space <laughs> is such a wonderful bend that you're really watching a much different show in the closing episodes than you were at the beginning, and, and it's hard to justifying your brain how you got from A to Z. Uh, oh, and, and Ramana is glorious. Mm. Uh, and, and, and K-9 is quickly dismissed. So that's, that's kind of good too. Oh, big jump forward. The Caretaker. All right. Snap. Um, oh. Yeah. <laughs> you get a lot more about Coal Hill School and some of its basic operations. There's some nice little, uh, little fan service moments in there uh, throughout. And this is a much needed point in the loggerhead between 12 and Danny Pink. And for those of us who live time watching it, we weren't really sure about this Danny Pink character. And we, honestly, we weren't really sure about Clara for a while because some of us weren't totally pleased with the, um, uh, with the Matt Smith, Clara, you know, sort of that, that dynamic. This was the point where it closed that, that character triangle. 
and it really forced her to start to come to terms with the fact that there was this duality of lives that was going to be more complicated than she had calculated for. So I thought that was a really powerful story, and it's really kind of necessary viewing for the Capaldi era, because it's, it, it's, it has its light comedic aspects to it, um, but it is also important to the longer arc in, in many ways. All right, how are we doing here? Oh, uh, you're going to notice a lot of Capaldi in here. Sorry, but not sorry. Flatline. Okay, reason being, this is a showstopper for Clara in particular, because this is a very Dr. Light story, and it's the beginning of when you start to see Clara's decline into that doctor emulation that leads to her demise. That this is where she's really starting to tinker with, I could do this. I could, I, I'm, I'm learning enough from this and I can, I can carry these sort of things. I'm still terrified, uh, but I think I can do this. And she's stepping, she's overstepping her bounds and potentially her abilities. But more so, it is a genuinely terrifying story. Uh, it is an interesting adversary concept that is artistically kind of unusual. It's not something we've often seen. It has a nice big showdown scene and a train tunnel, which is great. Got great power from Capaldi in final set, in final moments. But the Bigby character, Bigby was it Big Bigsy? Bigby? Briggsy. 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 Was one of those uh, single characters that you could very easily said. Pick that kid up, put, put him in the tarps, bring him along. I want, I want this kid to be a companion because he's got the chops, he's got the interest, and he's got the intelligence. And we actually did an episode years ago on this about one uh, characters we wanted to see more of, or we, I think we called it They Deserve More Time, because we're clever. Uh, and he was way at the top of the list. So, yeah, flatline, for sure. So that's a Riggsy. Briggsy was Earthshock. Riggsy, thank you. Yeah, I'm going to keep doing this. Local knowledge. Uh, dark Water. No? Nothing? Oh, good. Cool. Here's why. This is the second best master reveal oh, yes. <laughs> ever televised for this show behind Spyfall. Uh, there are so many clues to Missy's identity and the Cybermen's involvement in this story that going back on second watch is just a whole nother gift and being able to pick up on all these things. Artistically, it's, it's, uh, it's brilliantly shot. Uh, it, from the tone and the color, it, it's unparalleled. And who directed? Rachel Palau. Rachel Ooh, you're not going to go wrong there. Uh, and it has infinite rewatchability uh, for, for a thousand reasons. Okay. World enough in time. Oh, snaps. Yeah. Uh, again, I'm going to jump down to the bottom of the list for why I do this. Um, Jacob in the room? Yeah. Cover Jacob's ears for a second. <laughs> Bill fucking Potts. <laughs> I have never cried as much in a story as I did for this character. The pain that radiates through moments that, not only in the direction, but in the editing, lingering on moments that become uncomfortably long and knowing exactly when to shift away to something that is uh, a total change in, in pace and activity, and it doesn't give you time to, to, to pack that away. It forces you to suddenly compartmentalize because it's going to come up the next time it happens. Everything that you had shoved in a box 10 minutes ago is now gonna join the pain next to it. It is incredible uh, and, and, uh, and is cathartic by the time you get to the close. But even throughout, You've got Simon Gomez 
who have the most uncomfortably beautiful chemistry together mm. that you don't know if you should be enjoying what you're watching, but yeah. you're watching <laughs> is unstoppable. Uh, Mondesian Cybermen and, and, and going back to Sockheads is how you, you gotta love that just for, for fun factor. And this is very complicated, but yet kind of plausible sci-fi going on with what's what happening at the front of the ship, the back of the ship. That's, it's, it's interesting in a hard science meaty way as well. So that's got to I'm going to do it for time. Oh, this, right. is, this is your last week. A little bit over, but you can talk quickly. Over? Okay, then I'm going to wrap it through this. Father's Day. Snap. Oh. Yeah. All right. Paul Cornell is now in the, in the Pantheon. And welcome, sir. Uh, this is, uh, it really establishes consequence in time travel for, for this modern audience, okay, for 2005 forward. Because it's the first time we're really, really dealing with fixed points and the immutability of fixed points. Uh, the emotional investment for Rose's family, I think we had a conversation yesterday about any time you can get emotionally invested in a character's family, it adds so much to that character themselves. So if you weren't really sold on Rose yet, and Jackie was a bit daffy, and you weren't really sure what to do, now you've got the dad story as well, literally dying in the street. You care a little bit more about Rose now, and if you don't, you need to do a soul check. <laughs> and it sets a precedent for a lot of stories to follow in terms of that fixed point and, and everything that manipulates with that. And the last one, last one I've got, I'm so, it's so funny that these things end up in this random order, is Black Orchid. Yeah, Ooh. back to Davison. So here's the reason why. This is a very, very tight two-parter. And the pacing is extremely strong. And it's an easy plot to understand. There are really no extraneous elements to this that you would have to... We talked about maybe using this as a, as a primer for the Davison era. Because it's, it's quick viewing. And it's also something that you don't have to worry about TARDIS, time travel, or anything of that sort. It's, it's, it's a... It's a whodunit in science fiction, rather than trying to stuff science fiction into a whodunit, which doesn't always land at all. Sarah Sutton doing double duty uh, is kind of interesting and fun, gives her a chance to flex a little bit. And, and you've got the doctor playing cricket, so who's that? Woo! All right, give it up for Keir, thank you! All right, for the next round, Hannah gave us twice, I'm gonna skip you for this next round, and then we'll go back to the line. Jan, what is your next one? Okay, my next one is going to be The Husbands of River Song. Snap! Please, snap. Well, yours. We, okay. we both have it. Okay, yeah. Um, to me, this is just a tour de farce episode. It's a standalone. It wraps up the entire River Song arc that started way back in Silence and uh, Parts of the Dead. And just Capaldi and uh, Alex Kingston working together. It's a screwball comedy. They are Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant. They are Catherine Hepburn and Spencer uh, Tracy. Just like uh, Howard Hawks, like any classic screwball comedy. And it's romantic. And it starts out as this wacky, you know, you know, farce that's going on because she doesn't know who he is. And he's like, you know, messing with her head like nobody's business. And, you know, it's great because you can see Cavaldi loves to pull the, oh, wait a minute, how is it bigger on the inside, in the inside, uh, yeah, bigger on the inside than on the outside? And, um, you know, you know he's always wanted to say that and be able to do that, and he does. Um, and also you've got uh, Matt, Matt Lewis, Matt Lucas, sorry, it's been a day, Matt Lucas and you've got Greg, Greg Davies, both of who are like masterclass comedians of their own, playing these wacky characters. And then you have this whole heist over a diamond and you think that's where it's going and you're on the ship and this and that and then suddenly we're getting to the you know we're getting to derillium and all of a sudden like the tone changes but it's beautiful and just that i mean every time i see this episode i cry because just the fact that and again it's kingston and it's capaldi playing 
together and it's such romance you such feeling and they've never worked together before as those characters and i mean i would love to see you know more of that 24 years that they spent there not you know not just because it's a romance and i would love to see the two of them working together and i think again it's another one of moffat's like just amazing amazing scripts so there you go all right, we're a little over time. I'm going to do my own Top 60 episode on Doctor Who literature for the 60th anniversary. So I'm going to yield my time. I'm going to give the name, five or six words, and then we'll move on down the line. Everyone else will have their 45 seconds. My second one is City of Death. Snap. Yeah. Tom Baker, Lyle Ward, Tom Chadbon, Julian Glover, Mona Lisa. John Perfection. Cleese. John Cleese. John Cleese. John Cleese. <laughs> Douglas Adams. Eleanor Braun. Eleanor Braun and John Cleese. Next. Jody. Um, okay. I am going with The Doctor's Wife. I, I love this episode. The one constant in The Doctor's Life has always been the TARDIS. And here we get to actually have her embodied. And um, the interactions with the two of them are lovely. And um, I cry. I, I don't. I cried a lot at the end of that when he's actually saying goodbye and you can see the pain in his eyes because Matt Smith did this amazing. Saran Jones was incredible as Idris. And it just, it, this story blew me away. Um, I said, now that's the love of his life. 1996, the Doctor Who movie. Ooh. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, listen. Is, is it ever wrong to have more Palm again? No. <laughs> of course, no. Um, you know, it brought Doctor Who back after so many, so many years. Now, this is not something I would have known because I was not a Doctor Who fan at this point in time. This is my entry point into Doctor Who. Now, admittedly, it definitely casts some unusual ideas about what Doctor Who was for me, but that's my own problem, not yours. Um, I think Paul again is great. I think Daphne Ashwood is great. I think you so is great. I always dress for the occasion. Um, so what if there's an action film? So what if there's kissing? Uh, every aspect of it is new, and shouldn't that be something that we always expect from Doctor Who swinging for the fences? Because even if they miss, they try, right? And that is what this movie did. And in many ways, it brought it back. Because if we don't have this, those audio adventures that kept us going for the next 10 years or so, those probably wouldn't have been here. So I know we're just talking about the, uh, the televised stories, but it is a huge part of Doctor Who's history, and it is the cornerstone of mine. So there we go. All right. Jan, round three. Okay, this one is a little bit of a personal one for me. The Sunmakers. This is the first Ooh. episode that I ever, ever saw Doctor Who. As I've been saying too many times this weekend, I was in the UK, I was 15 years old, turned on the TV one night. We were there, in fact, it's my anniversary-ish this week. Um, and suddenly turned on the show and there was this man in a weird scarf Floppy hat, curly hair, woman in a leather bikini, a robot dog, and suddenly they were on Pluto and people were bitching about taxes. And to me, that was like, I don't know what I'm watching, but I need to watch more. <laughs> and, and so, um, and I had, even though I was a science fiction fan, I'd never heard of the show. So, um, just the fact that this show was written because Robert Holmes was upset about his taxes and, and, and the way the British tax system worked out, um, it's just a brilliant satire to me. It's just, it's smart, it's funny. You care about the characters. It's weird, you know. You've got, um, you know, just, just everybody being bled dry. You know, the death taxes. Everybody, and it's something we can all relate to, just in terms of like finances and how, and because it's also, you know, basically, you know, a call to socialism and how, you know, people on the top are, are 
getting too much from people on the bottom are getting too much. So it's a very political episode. And even at 15, I kind of got that. So that's one for me. So my favorite classic Who episode of all time is The Mind Robber, which it, it actually Ooh. reminds me quite a bit of The Doctor's Wife in, in a sense. It's about... Oh, snap, by the way. Something, yeah, snap here. Something outside of the, the reality of the, you know, outside of the universe. It's incredibly meta. It's incredibly ambitious for its time. It's so abstract it shouldn't work. Uh, the, the rules of the world are established bit by bit by bit, and then by the end of it, you're, you're like, oh, yes, yes, you can, you can write yourself into the fiction, and then, and then you lose control over yourself. And all of, these, all of these concepts are being thrown at you in a way that you can grasp because they're being expressed in fairy tale tropes and British literature tropes and all of these sort of uh, archetypal symbols. And it, it's, it's gr great character work as well. Um, Patrick Troughton is particularly good here. And I love, this is just an all-time great... Uh, way of writing around an actor's absence. The the, <laughs> the the doctor failing to reassemble Jamie's face uh, because he forgot what he looked like, and maybe the doctor's face blind. I mean, it's just it's a very very funny way to bring in another actor and and it, make it a character bit for one episode, and then J uh, Fraser Hines comes back. Just incredible stuff. The five doctors. Snap. <laughs> Terrence Dix's best script. I devoted two full episodes of Doctor Who literature to this, episode 81A and episode 81B. <laughs> I had Elizabeth Morton, who's married to Peter Davison, on as my guest for one of those two. One of my first stories, you get to see all the Doctors, including a clip of William Hartnell. Richard Herndahl is brilliant. Canine is in it. The ending, I had a VCR malfunction, and I missed the last, the critical moment when he puts the ring on. My VCR cut out. It took me oh, years no. before I saw the end of it. <laughs> Great ending. Um, mine is going to be surprising to people. The Edge of Destruction. Yeah. It's Ooh. it's uh, uh it's very short, um and but it uh, it involves people getting very uh, suspicious of each other, and it's always great to have people backstab each other and try to figure out what's going on. Huh. And um, the reason I love it is because honestly, it's that first thought, that first thought um, between the the Doctor and his companions, where he's not just this cranky old man and uh dealing with the people that 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 try to stop him from doing what he does um and it to me it was just it was brilliant i loved it my favorite classic episode the horror of fang rock snap uh terrence dick's greatest script because the economy of this as a horror film in four episodes is phenomenal Small place, small cast, isolated. It's legitimately scary, which is kind of hard to do, even if you have a floating green glowing cabbage. Um, I mean, the cliffhangers in that one are amazing. It is atmospheric. It, there's a real change to it. And it's one of those things, strangely enough, I don't know, maybe there's something saying about me, uh, it's comforting to me. There's something just, it's not zany. It's not crazy. It is, it's dire and it's earthbound. Uh, and it's just, you know, more horror films should take place in a lighthouse. Dan. Mm. The next one, uh, also a classic who, The Time Warrior. Mm. Love it. Nice. Um, another Robert Holmes script. Um, two really important introductions here. One is, of course, Sarah Jane Smith, who becomes everybody's, or at least my favorite companion of all time. But, you know, she's always on the top of the list. And she's very very different we just got you know joe grant just had left and now we're suddenly getting somebody who's not the tea lady isn't going to be you know she's 
she's opening her mouth. She's not just the girl who's going to stand there and trip over her own feet and scream. Um, it's a time travel adventure, um, and we get introduced to the Santarans, who in their first episode, they're scary. I, I think he's scary. And um, I mean, there's humor, too, but it's not like by the time we're getting to the two doctors, you know, in classic season or, you know, Strax, as much as I love the character of Strax, where it's basically wacky Santaran who, you know, talks a good game but doesn't actually do stuff. So um, he's he's scary. And then just the fact that you're in this medieval setting, um, you know, and just the reaction of all the different characters and just seeing how, you know, we've got your angry barbarians and then we've got the people in the castle who are also more together and the doctor you know john Pertwee has a ball in this too he gets to fence he gets to really be an action hero excellent hannah the war games which Snap. is Snap. doctor who does paths of glory uh it's such a strange uh tonal shift for patrick troughton's era which is so clowning so you know light most of the time though you do have these sort of like grim gothic episodes like web of fear but you drop him into this epic uh, and it really is an epic, maybe a little bit too much, uh, around episode eight. But, you know, it's just, there's so much pathos, so much feeling. You can feel it building towards a real ending. And it feels like it, the show knows it. It's like this is this is uh, inventing the concept of a regeneration episode as it goes in a way that it qu hadn't quite had before. You know, everything was new the first time around. Um, and so it gives Patrick Troughton, and I'll, I'll end with this, a real... Uh, moment of heroism to go out on too, which just so ennobles this little tramp. And my T-shirt is from the War Games, designed by Jim Sangster on his Redbubble store. No, what a stupid fool you are! <laughs> my next one, Inferno. Yeah. Snap, snap. Every line of dialogue in Part One predicts what's going to happen over the rest of the story. Some of the best cliffhangers, episode four and episode six, you will never get better cliffhangers than those two. Sadly, Liz Shaw's final story, but she's terrific in it in a dual role. Um, very quickly, kinda. Um, I'm actually that's one of my favorites of the uh, Peter Davison era. I think that um, that's Samara, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. The um, uh, when they have this. Albeit not very um, realistic snake, um, <laughs> kind of snake being that takes over the mind of Tegan. And that's another one where they had, they, they needed to, to get rid of one of the companions, so they put her to sleep. Mm -hmm. so she's taking a nap. Um, but uh, Tegan is, I think, phenomenal in it. She doesn't get to play the normal whining Tegan that you see it at many times, and so I think that it really delved into her acting, and I, I liked it a lot. Um, I, I think the themes that it hits, it, it's, it's a lot of uh, religious and, and themes, and um, I think it's a very, very underappreciated Peter Davison episode. The Face of Evil. Um, the idea that the Doctor has adventures that we haven't seen yet is not new to the series. It happens every once in a while, but it's done so very well. Talk about this cliffhanger where there's a giant mountain that just is just Baker's face. Nuts. <laughs> Leela's first episode, and what an amazing companion. I mean, I should have had more. Possibly my favorite. Um, I think it's interesting to look at how a society flourishes or fails. I think um, the drama is fun. I think the twist with the computer and the madness that exists in it is great. Also, it is based off of one of my favorite movies of all time, which is Zardoz, and I have nothing else to say. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, uh, for the next round, we're going down to 30 seconds a person. I got to keep time a little more strictly. Jan. Uh, school reunion. Snap! Uh, as I said, Sarah Jane, favorite companion. She finally comes back. Um, David Tennant as 10th Doctor, still sort of finding his feet, but it finally deals with the Doctor and consequences of just leaving his companions by the side of the road. Um, and so it's very moving, it's very emotional because Sarah gets to have a really big speech and we get to find out what happens when the Doctor leaves a companion. Tony Head chews scenery and that makes it all worthwhile. And then also Mickey gets to do things and I think he's great too. Hannah. Silence in the Library and Forest of the Dead. Still, I think, River Song's best episode, an incredibly uh, tragic and moving, but almost in enclosed story, <laughs> you know, that, that you can just watch it is isolated and think, oh, what, 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 <laughs> it just evokes such moving uh, possibilities for the Doctor's character, for her character, has a great arc for the Doctor, has a great arc for Donna as well, has a great villain, just a great episode pair all around. The Seeds of Doom. Yeah. All right, no snaps. Tom Baker and Elizabeth Sladen have their best chemistry. Tony Beckley is one of the best villains ever. The two-part Antarctica prologue is taken from Things from Another World, but it works perfectly. The musical score is great. Douglas Camfield's Genius Direction, it was his last time on the show. I'm surprised no one else has it, but I'm glad it's here. Midnight. Snap. Snap. One of the best bottle episodes I have ever seen. And what really is kind of creepy is that you never really kind of find out what that entity is. And um, you see uh, the, the woman slowly get taken over and the doctor trying to work at it. And then it starts to take him over. And he starts to lose his voice, which, is, you know, his, his, his words, which is his weapon. And so this doctor is going to lose until the host, who we never get to hear her name, um, you know, saves the day. So it's just, I think it was in, oh, okay, and that's why I liked it. Vampires of Venice. Snap. Doctor Who is best when it is unpredictable, and this is bonkers to extreme. <laughs> yes, you've got a myth, but yes, the myth is explained by uh, space aliens. Uh, there's a lot of comedy, there's a lot of humor, there's a lot of relationship going on. It has one of the best cold opens with uh, Matt Smith jumping out of a cake. Honestly, is that, do you need any more? And it has my favorite moment in all of Doctor Who where he is surrounded by the women and he goes, this is Christmas because that, in the face of peril, is the Doctor. <laughs> Jan. Okay, the next one is Day of the Doctor. Yahoo, snap! Um, all right, let's do the, uh, so Moffat brings back 10, Moffat, and he gets to interact with 11, we get to see the Zygons again, we get to see Unit, we get to meet John Hurt as the War Doctor, which I know is controversial, but I love him. Uh, Doctor and uh, Eleven and Clara's relationship is suddenly very different, very positive. Um, there's weird timey-wimey stuff, there is Queen Elizabeth, we've got, you know, time travel, comedy, drama, and he also brings back Alfred. Enlightenment. Snap. It feels like the Fifth Doctor, his his writing maybe didn't always live up to his talents, and this is one of the great great ones where it really does. And the uh, the set design is incredible. Uh, the the whole concept of these steampunk ships in space is just fantastic. The villains are creepy. Uh, all, pretty much all the characters get something to do. I love how it finishes up the Turlo arc, even though I have mixed feelings about the uh, the what is it, the white and the black, the blah blah blah. Anyway. Um, but it's just, it's a great piece of TV. The Ambassadors of Death. Snap. Cold, open cliffhangers. Plus James Bond to a max. Um, okay, uh, let's go with Ghostlight. 
Um, this is you are deep into the into the um, story of uh, Sylvester's doctor and Ace and how he's manipulating her and everything and um, it, it takes her back to the place that she felt very guilty about about um, burning down a place because she felt the presence of this of this evil um, entity and um, he, he at the end she feels good about what she's done and I like that Blink. Uh, yeah. I think it's the single greatest episode of television of all time. Now, it might not be the best Doctor Who episode, but it de delves into time travel in a way that has made almost everything else, with maybe the exception of Day of the Doctor, pale in comparison. Um, being able to rewrite stories in that way, it's horrific, it's funny, it's touching, it's great. Terror of the Zygons. Now, that's an episode... Um, uh, having mentioned them before, um, Zygons, that episode scared the crap out of me when I was a kid, scares the crap out of me now. Zygons are excellent, excellent monsters. Um, they have a good motivation. The fact that they're in Scotland and they're using the Loch Ness Monster for their food source is just insane. Um, Baker's great. There's a lot of just intrigue. The ship is scary and gross. And it also brings us not only to the Day of the Doctor, but also Zygon Inversion and Zygon Invasion. So we, they, it took them you know, 30-odd years to come back, but they came back and they were great. Spearhead from Space, which I think <laughs> is the best first episode of a Doctor's run ever, which I know may, may, may be controversial, but it just does so many things and so many of them well. And it's throwing a lot at you. It's establishing the new Doctor. It's establishing a new setting, this new concept that we can't travel through time and space. It's, it's a new color Doctor. I mean, there's so many things that it's throwing at you, and it does so beautifully with a great deal of wit and, and uh, charm. Pyramids of Mars. Mm. Yeah. Two of the greatest guest performances on the show. Michael Sheard as uh, the doomed Lawrence Scarman and Gabriel Wolfe as the voice of Sutek. They later brought him back for essentially the same role in the new series. Every line of dialogue is worth putting on a t-shirt. Um, turn left. Snap. Um, yeah. Donna's an amazing companion, but she never knew her worth and this episode showed it this episode showed that she was able to to bring such a, a different outcome for the doctor and and be there when he needed her and and that was incredible christmas carol did i say that blink was the best use of time travel <laughs> <laughs> you take a classic story you take just prime moffat uh and it's a, a touching uh, it's just great also, Sky Shark. Done. <laughs> Dalek. Oh, snap. snap. Um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're in the new series. We're in episode six of the brand new series. Nobody knows what a Dalek is. We hear about a Metaltron. And it's also one of Chris Eccleston's best performances ever. Rod Sherman's script is great. Um, we get to mock Americans. And we, the, we see the doctor dealing with PTSD. And nobody else knows what the fuck he's upset about. And we do, and the audience does. And it's great. Human Nature and Family of Blood, mm, one of the snap, great David snap. Tennant performances in the show. Very lo touching love story, great historical setting, uh, a very touching use of World War I uh, memory, and, and all, all of the just cultural elements that really go into that make it a very special episode, I think. The Ark in Space. Snap. Snap. Alien, four years before Alien, makes bubble wrap scary. <laughs> Um, sorry. Uh, let's do the daemons. Snap. Um, can't go wrong with the master. Um, uh, it, uh, it, it's just, um, I like it because you got to see a lot of unit. 
and um, it, it just uh, was a very enjoyable episode. Dinosaurs on a spaceship! Snaps. Yes. <laughs> Done! <laughs> oh, we're doing more than ten? Uh, no, that was, we were eight each, so. Oh, okay. Two more from you. All right, two more from me. But uh, one at a time. Okay, hold on, let me do this real quick, let me find something. Uh, well, Zygon Invasion, Zygon Inversion. Yeah. I'm going to count them all as one story. Oh, of course, yes, one story. Um, you know, we bring the, the Zygons back, and instead of just making them creepy, scary monsters, there's suddenly, you know, this wonderful metaphor for immigration and uh, assimilation and how people deal with, you know, people, move people moving in and on a global scale. And again, this, if nothing else, that war speech by Capaldi sells it all. The speech sells uh, just definitely I'm awesome. I'm going to throw this out there somewhat unexpectedly maybe. Robot of Sherwood uh, splits people, but I, I find it really funny. It's a great way for Capaldi to really do something uh, light and funny early in his, his run when he was often quite grim. And uh, it has a wonderful ending speech where he realizes the, the folly of thinking that, uh, that stories and uh, myths and I think the subtext there is religion is the, uh, the opiate of the people. Why would, why would one tell, them, tell people hopeful stories if you wanted to oppress them? That's ridiculous. So anyway, it's a nice little anti-Marx uh, anti uh, way of thinking about that, which I like. An unearthly child. Snap. It's the very first story the first 25 minutes, the introduction to the Doctor and the TARDIS and Susan, there is not a wasted moment, there is not a bad word in that entire 25 minutes. Ian and Barbara instantly become the greatest companions of all time. I'm also going to give a shout out to the three episode Caveman Historical at the back end. This is actually pretty sharply written. I know it doesn't get a great reputation, but it's an underrated historical this is the first time that Doctor Who goes political, with the Doctor picking sides between human cavemen and Neanderthals. 1963, and Doctor Who is already going woke. <laughs> Remembrance of the Daleks. Ace hits a, a hits the Dalek with a, a snap. bat. Snap. Enough said. Fear her. Yeah. What? It is a brilliant film about child trauma. If if you remove the Olympics completely from it, it is a terrifying story with an amazing child actor. Yeah. If Keir was here, that would have been a snap. Yeah. <laughs> All right, last one from each of us. Okay. We can take about a minute each now. Yep. Let me just go find what's on. Oh, the 11th hour. A one snap. of the greatest, yeah. if not yeah. the greatest, introduction of a doctor ever, all time in the entire history of Doctor Who. Uh, Matt Smith comes in, falling from the end of uh, End of Time Part 2, crashes on Earth. We suddenly were brought into this whole situation with Amy Pond, and, and, and again, use of time travel that only, only the way the Moffat can. So he meets Amelia, we get this whole setup, one of the best comedy bits with the Doctor versus food, um, <laughs> and then suddenly we're 10 years ahead, but the Doctor doesn't know it, and so I just think Matt has a, does an incredible performance there, and plus you've got Olivia Coleman in just this minor role, and nobody knew how great Olivia Coleman was going to be, um, you've got, you know, the first time that really the Eighth Doctor was brought in and proven as part of the Pantheon, hands down, and that whole, uh, the whole video, uh, montage, and also the first use of I Am the Doctor, which is, to me, the greatest Doctor theme ever. Rose, which is just a lovely introduction to the new series, doing so much again, uh, just 
Billy Piper gives such a performance in that. She just gets you on board with what she is doing with this new type of companion. She convinces you that she's going to be great. She convinces you that she's not just going to be the pop star that, that got the, the gig. Uh, she's in, instead going to be this immature teenager who has a real arc. All right, and this is my number 10. I've, I've gotten to read my top 10 uninterrupted. Nobody's claimed a story before me. This is the only, This is the first new series story that I have in my top 60. Mummy on the Orient Express. Snap. Everybody. Peter Capaldi is doing Tom Baker. The emotional arc between him and Clara goes all over the place over the course of two seasons, but this is at its best. The Foretold is one of my favorite villains of all time. There's a fan theory that The Foretold, a soldier in a forgotten war, is Danny Pink. <laughs> so I adore it to pieces. Um, my last choice is Amy's choice. Um, I love those stories where you have to pick which is the right situation and what isn't, but what I really loved is the Dream Lord. I thought it was a wonderful way of conveying who, who that being was. And um, at the end, you see that uh, Amy's choice would have been Rory. That's 60. Wait, so somebody uh, double counted. All right, Drew, give us one more then. Sure. Um... Boy, do I want to shock everybody? No, sure. that would be yeah, fine. Let's shock everybody. All right. you like shock. Shock us. No, I wish it would have been fear her then, um, but uh, I went with it. You know what? I really like the unicorn and the wasp. Um, I like a good romp, and I, I think it's a good setup. I think it's a good story. I recommend you all read Agatha Christie in general, but probably reading it beforehand so you don't get spoiled. Um, is brilliant. And I'm now realizing I should have said Paradise Towers. But there we go. Paradise Towers is a snap. Paradise Towers is 60 on my list. Uh, as a bonus, we, we perfect. So we got 61 stories in 50 minutes. Sean Lyon, uh, the, basically the head honcho at Gallifrey 1 in L.A., was supposed to be here. He had to leave early because of Hurricane Hillary about to slam into Southern California. So he's already home. So we are going to give Sean's top 10. I'm not going to give explanations. Sean will do that on my podcast at a later date. But shout out Snap if it's on your list. And this is Sean's top 10. Nightmare of Eden. Okay. State of Decay. Snap. Yeah. All right. I'll give his top 10. Some of these are Snaps. Face of Evil. The War Games. Silence in the Library. Snap. City of Death. Snap. Snap. Greatest Show in the Galaxy. Snap. Gridlock. Oh, snap. I, I, I forgot it, but yeah, that would have been a snap. Uh, the last two were snaps, 11th Hour and Heaven Sent. And then these are his bonus ones um, that have not already been picked. Rebos Operation. Yeah. Snap. Curse of Peladon. Snap. Genesis of the Daleks. Surprised snap. we didn't hear that. Deep Breath. Snap. Black Orchid was also on his list, so that's a snap. Carnival of Monsters was on his list. That's a snap. Robots of Death. Mm -hmm. Snap. Three Doctors. Snap. Deadly Assassin. Snap. And we're going to end on a shocking... This is Sean's shocking choice, as shocking as Drew's choice of Fear Her. Four to Doomsday. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Um, everybody, uh, introduce yourselves one last time. I'm Drew Meyer. I'm Jody Harkavy. Jason Miller. Hannah Long. Jan Fennec. This will be, in the next few weeks, an episode of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. You can follow Doctor Who Literature. You can fo follow me on Twitter, or X, at Doctor, <laughs> it's 
Doctor Who novels, DR Who novels. Um, I will tag all of these fine folks on Facebook when it goes out, and they will hopefully share it as well. Thank you so much. Hope you really enjoyed the con. Now, I'm terrible at math, but the final count between classic and new Who depends on what you consider the 96 movie. Because it's possibly 30 versus 30. Wow. My thanks to everyone on that excellent panel. Next up is my panel on the Target books, also recorded last Sunday. Again, there's a wide cross-section of fans. Rob Bardsley, a local Doctor Who fan. Dan Murphy, also a local Doctor Who fan, who brought the entire Target library with him, which made an on-the-spot reading inevitable. Catherine Sullivan, a long-time online Doctor Who fan and young adult author, who's been a friend since I discovered Rec Arts Doctor Who. Between us, we've written zero Target novelizations ourselves, but fortunately... We were joined by John Peel, author of Five Targets, and previously a guest on Doctor Who Literature, episode 30. Let's hear what we have to say. Well, hi everybody. Welcome to the Targets Old and New Book Club panel. My name is Jason Miller. I am also the host of the Doctor Who Literature podcast. Um, we have a great panel today, uh, starting down at the end. Hi, I'm John Peel. I actually wrote some of these, so I have a bit of personal knowledge. <laughs> Hi, I'm Rob Barsley. I actually read some of these books, <laughs> so I do have some knowledge. Hi, I'm Dan. I'm just a fan, but have been a fan since the 1980s when these were very prolific in the corner bookstore. I have here the complete set. <laughs> and I'm Catherine Sullivan, and in the early days, I was using the talking novelizations as reference material to write fantasy and stories. And now you are a multiple published author, I yes. believe. Yes, and also including in reference books such as Children of Time, The Companions of Doctor Who. So, uh, Daniel, you brought all your targets. Yes, I live within driving distance, so uh, weight was not an option, uh, uh, an, uh, an obstacle. <laughs> so yes, uh, and they are in uh, order by uh, by doctors, so not release order, because the Target books were never published in any particular orders. Whatever was current slash available to any particular author, mostly Terence Dix. <laughs> See, I decided to bring visual aids, so I brought the next three novelizations that I'm working on for my podcast. I go in publication order, and it jumps all over the calendar, from Warriors of the Deep to the Aztecs to Inferno. So, three books, three doctors, three decades. I thought that would be a fun visual aid. I didn't realize I was going to be sitting in front of a whole Megillah. <laughs> <laughs> Including David J. Howe's excellent Target reference book, which I use frequently. And uh, John was a guest on episode 30 of my show talking about the Dalek invasion of Earth. John, you and I on that show, we went through 60 years of fandom in 60 minutes. You, <laughs> I believe, bought the very, very first Target book when it first came out? Yes, what happened was um, the first three Doctor Who books were written in the 60s, um, published then, and then they went out of print for a decade. Um, I bought the very first one, the Doctor Who in an exciting adventure with the Daleks and basically wore it out because I just absolutely love that book. Uh, David's writing inspired me and everything. So um, when I realized that 
hey, they've taken the three novels and reprinted them. Wonderful. And I immediately bought them and replaced my original copies. And to my surprise, a little later, two more came out. Now, this is way back before fandom, way, way, way back before the internet or anything. We had no idea they were going to come out. They just turned up like a miracle in the bookstores. So, oh boy, we were in for a treat. And from then on, every time I went in the bookstore, you know, first place I go to is the Doctor Who section. Is there anything new? And it was it was amazing time because you had no idea what was going to come next. I mean, no clue whatsoever. It's just any, whatever any, turned up. Did you? No. no. So you know, it was it was a potluck thing, and absolutely. You know, wonderful waiting to see what's coming because there were never repeats or anything. So, this was all we had, and boy, was it a great treat! I mean, those early ones, especially from Terence and uh, Malcolm Hulk, just lovely writing and um, superb. They got a little skimpy later, but did you ever envision as you bought your first one, as you're collecting them in the 70s, that you were going to be writing before the line? came to an end <laughs> not a clue uh, I mean I would have if I'd thought about it I would have loved it but it, it just didn't seem possible did it I mean why why would I get to write one? <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> have to write a Doctor Who story first you know get it televised and then write one but yeah I mean I, I like the idea but it, it was an impossibility and go, going down the rest of the table what are our target origin stories when did you first discover them where were you living what year well, I started back in the um, 80s, and some of my Target books, actually I got out of a, like a second-hand bookstore, so that's why I have some that say that they belong to a young lady, and they have a little sticker uh, nameplate in there. Others I bought from, you know, Barnes & Noble or B. Daughton. Um, one of the things I started learning over the years is that the reprints, when they reprint them, sometimes they would do, redo the whole cover art uh, to set it apart from the first edition. And then, obviously, as we said, Target stopped publishing for a long time until more recently, where they're going back and doing some of the reprints of the older stories, but also the newer stories. Uh, I'm from Danvers, Massachusetts. Uh, it's next to Salem, north of Boston. Hello, North Northsider. Uh, so a local bookstore in the local mall was called Walden Books in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. So uh, they had a science fiction section. As the 30th or 20th anniversary came around, 1983, there was actually a special Doctor Who section because the the, uh, uh, the reference books by Peter Haining were starting to come out. But there were the target novelizations. Uh, so I picked up a couple. Um, through the reference material, I knew that there was more stories prior to Tom Baker, who was then on WGBH TV. So uh, through the episode guides, Jean-Marc Lefissier, uh, I was able to know what story titles there were. And I, uh, at the time, you could order the older versions through microfiche. <laughs> so went along and basically everything was listed at the time, they had renumbered uh, the uh, the uh, the system. The early releases they were effectively alphabetized. So, target number one is the abominable snowman. 
and then it goes to, uh, I forget how many numbers, but yeah, I started getting them alphabetically only because I just went to the top of the list and just, you know, six at a time, because uh, I had a part-time part job, so I just went from there. And Kathy? Well, I didn't get into Doctor Who fandom until much later as an adult. I was already writing short stories in a fanzine, and a fanzine editor wanted me to write Doctor Who stories. What? Set me down in front of her TV set, showed me uh, Brain to Morbius, and I was hooked. We were on our way to Media WestCon, the very first one. There were fanzines about Doctor Who already, and there were people selling Target novels. And because she wanted me to write stories, I had to do my research. Sorry, librarian in my other life. Uh, I had to do my research. So I started looking for the Target novelizations at conventions. Uncle Hugo's in Minneapolis and Dreamhaven in Minneapolis usually carried them. And I just started collecting them from there because I wanted to get these doctors all straight because, hey, there were more than one. I grew up on Long Island, about 20 exits west of here. And I discovered the show when I was 11 years old. And I quickly discovered that there were books. So my father made me a deal. In exchange for babysitting my kid sister after school, I would get two books every two weeks. And if I babysat her on a Saturday night, if my parents went out, I would get three books every two weeks. Each book was two ninety-five. He was saving so much money compared to a babysitter. So I should have renegotiated the contract. But I would go to Walden Books every other Saturday morning at the, uh, what was then the Mid-Island Plaza. This changed names a couple of times. And I would stand in front of two shelves, and every week the books would turn over because there were so many fans coming in and buying them. It was never the same book twice. To this day, I still have dreams about standing there in front of a shelf with my head sideways, reading the spines, and then grabbing books. When I walked in here and saw this whole collection, my adrenaline rush, oh my god, I've got to buy all these. Of course, I have them all, but I still have that adrenaline rush. <laughs> uh, John, how long did it take you to get a full collection of the entire series? I'm still working on it because they keep doing new ones now. That's true, but the, the original, the classics. Oh, the originals, um, after, right after the last one was published, uh, um, it was on my shelf. <laughs> no, I kept up. I, every time one came out, I would buy it. I mean, there, there was... Uh, there was no way I was going to keep you know, miss any of them because they were all so much fun, um, especially the ones that I had not seen on TV, because I had missed quite a few episodes, um, and as with everybody, these were my only way to learn, you know, to learn what I'd missed. How about you? Yeah, one of the things we you, know, you talked about the missing episodes. So one of the great things about the, these novelizations is I have your Marco Polo. Uh, was novelized by the writer you know, who, of the story. And the key thing is, everybody goes, we would love to see Marco Polo. It's so great if you saw any of the telescapes from it, from the pictures. Very colorful. Whole story is lost. This is pretty much the only way that you can read the whole story, visualize it in your head. And the great thing about the range is, especially for the missing episodes, like John did the uh, Dalek Master Plan. Again, large, large part of that totally missing. But now you can read it and you can capture it. And if you're familiar with the doctors, you mentally had their pictures. So I could picture William Hartnell's first doctor and Barbara and Susan and Ian with, you know, going to you know Kublai Khan and Genghis Khan and Marco Polo and the TARDIS being transported. 
you know, it's a great visualization. Mm. And plus, there's great artwork, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, the yes. artwork on these covers is just excellent. Andrew Skilleter, Chris Achilleos. My t-shirt comes direct from mm -hmm. Chris Achilleos' web yes. store before he passed okay. away. This is the original Invasion of the Dinosaur novelization cover. And uh, Daniel, when did you start collecting? Do you have the entire series? This is the entire series Everything. of targets to include uh, some of the newer ones. Uh, this one isn't technically a target novelization, but it is the original novelization of the movie. With pictures. Which Gary Reda redid. Uh, it's more of a director's cut version of the original. Uh, it's got some added bits. He kind of tweaks some stuff, but it's done in the target style. So there's that. Um, Do you want me to hold up your other ones down here, the Douglas Adam ones? Uh, yes, uh, those were the. Uh, this is the original uh, script by Douglas Adams of the Pirate Planet. Uh, James Goss did do a Target style, uh, kind of a bridged, more akin to what was broadcast version, uh, should be in this box here. Okay. That's the only novelization of Shada right now. I'm not sure if they're doing a Target version of that, but we at least have a novelization of the unbroadcast story. Now, uh, there's two stories in the Key to Time series, Androids of Tara and, um, I believe, Stones of Blood, both written by David Fisher. The original novelizations were done by Terence Dix, but David Fisher, the original author for the Target reprints, went back and did it based on his original stuff. So there's now two different novelizations of the same story. And uh, the newer Target novelizations done in the style, one of the latest ones, The Witch Finders, but they, uh, I don't know if they're gonna novelize everything in the new series, but they've been picking and choosing as they go along. Uh, Barnes and Noble kind of failed me on a shipment. They uh, said no more in stock on the on the latest version, so there should be properly three more here, but no such luck. And I want to give a shout out before we get to the end of the table. BBC Audio, uh, Michael Stevens is the executive producer, have been doing lush novelization audiobooks for the last 15 or 20 years, um, narrated by the original cast in many instances, including actors who have since passed away. But Michael Stevens commissioned the new David Fisher novelizations of Androids of Tara and Stones of Blood. So those were originally done as audiobooks and have just come out as novelizations. When John Ly when Stephen Gallagher, writing as John Lidecker, originally submitted his manuscript for Warrior's Gate in the early 80s, he adapted his original scripts and not the broadcast scripts. He turned in a book that was vastly different to what was televised, and John Nathan Turner said, no, you can't do that. So we had to rewrite it. But the BBC Audiobooks released the original Stephen Gallagher novelization, narrated by John Culshaw, who does all the voices. And that has just come out as one of last month's brand new targets. So what's great about the new targets is we're getting these different looks, alternate looks, at the original target books. And isn't there also a uh, short story that he wrote that goes along with Warrior's Gate? I believe the full title of the book is Warrior's Gate and Beyond, and I believe there are two new short stories which I have not yet had the chance to read, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. Kathy, when did you... Do you have the entire collection? How long did it take you to amass? Uh, yeah, I do have the entire collection. But then I also had friends from the UK sending me copies. Ah. Uh. Which made life a little bit easier because 
Over here, trying to find things in the bookstore is not fun. <laughs> <laughs> so going back... Already been oh. on, no, I'm seeing <clears throat> novelizations of the new anniversary specials, too. Yes, we are getting... Gary's going to be doing one. That's right. We're getting three. the three... RTD specials coming out in November with David Tennant as the 14th Doctor. Each one of them is getting a novelization. We have uh, The Star Beast by Gary Russell, who's here this weekend. We have Wild Blue Yonder by Mark Morris. He was a Doctor Who original novelist in the 90s. And then James Goss, who's done several of the new targets, is adapting The Giggle, which I believe is going to be the regeneration story. Yeah, and those should be available in January. And uh, another thing... Uh, Telos, uh, with real time, they've been doing some spin-offs. They've novelized the spin-offs in the style of Target, so they have novelized Wartime, Deimos Rising, Olive Hawthorne, and the Demons of Devil's End, and uh, most recently on Blu-ray, Sill and the Devil Seeds of Arador. This one is available on Blu-ray in the dealer's room, courtesy of uh, Keith Barnfather. Good story. Highly recommended. I'm having that same adrenaline rush about buying those books, even though I haven't heard of some of them. <laughs> it's, that, it's, it's that target look and cover that grabs me. Yes. So going back down the line, starting with John, what are some of your absolute favorites of the range? And I realize oh. that's unfair because they're all favorites, but yeah. what are the real um, no, standouts? No, the, definitely um, the first one, of course, David Whittaker's Doctor Who and the Daleks. Um, it, it's just such a brilliantly done story and a, a it, you you can even though it's not exactly what was filmed, you can imagine it as filmed. It's very easy. Um, after that, well, the cave monsters was one of my mm. particular favourites. Um, Silurians, of course, but uh, <laughs> changed the title, that we, which gets very confusing sometimes for especially for new fans um, who don't realise that the, the, they weren't the original titles. Um, Pretty much almost anything Malcolm Hook and uh, the early Terence Dix, they're, they're all so good. Uh, I know in the special favourite was when Abominable Snowman came out because, oh no, wait a minute, Moonbase was the first one, wasn't it? Uh, Doctor Who and the Cybermen. Um, because what they were releasing the, the third Doctor stories while he was still on TV, so they made sense. But I didn't ever expect to find a second Doctor story. It was like, wow, they're going back. When are they doing hard? <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, I mean, they're all good. Um, it depends, like, first of all, with novelizations, if you, it kind of also goes with if you like the story. The book pretty much is the same. Uh, Remembrance of the Daleks um, with Sylvester McCoy. You know, so we had the TV episode, but what Ben Aronovich did in his novel is he added stuff. He added the concept of the other. This was the Cartmel master plan. So you had the other, Rassilon, and Omega, basically at the start of Time Lord Society in the manipulation of the, of the black hole in the sun. And it was just that extra layer that's added. Some authors did that. Um, I had the Mistmakers here. Um, it was written in the style of Homer. Homer is telling us this story. So it's very, you know, in that type of prose. Uh, of course, you know, John, your books were always, you know, <laughs> a good read because it really captured. Uh, but 
Another one I liked, and mm -hmm. this was actually not a televised episode, but Doctor Who and the Pesticons. It was an audio story, and it was novelized. So between listening to the audio, which is tremendous, reading it, it also gives you more of an insight, especially what was going on in the Doctor's head. Mm -hmm. So there, there's, there's many out there. Yeah. My very first novelization was Doctor Who and the Cybermen, the novelization of the Moon right. Base, and that was a nice, meaty-sized, 170-page book mm -hmm. before the page count started to shrink. That's mm -hmm. one of the targets that I've read the most often. Christopher H. Bidmead's novelization of Legopolis, which has that incredible mm -hmm. painting of Anthony Ainley on the cover, that's one of my favorite books of all time because the prose is so rich. Mm -hmm. Same with his follow-up novelization, Castro Valva. When I went to my first Doctor Who convention in Manhattan in 19, July 1985, the dealer's tables there were selling targets, older targets that I'd never seen in the store. So on the same day, I bought The Tenth Planet, The War Games, Three Doctors, and The Keys of Marinus. And I think I read all four of those pretty much in the hotel lobby before the convention was over. <laughs> but at this point, I was deep enough into fandom, even at age 11, to know these were pivotal pivotal stories and the keys of Marinus. So the idea of watching history unfold in front of me and reading the regenerations for both the first and the second Doctors was one of my life highlights. And some of your favorites. Oops. <laughs> From that end to this end. That's like asking your favorite doctor or your favorite companion. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I'm basically ambivalent about the, the authors adding more material to the story. Because sometimes it's like, okay, you just kind of overwork this a little bit. Uh, but when I read in Martyrs, basically retelling of the Centauran experiment, that mm -hmm. was really nicely done. Mm -hmm. And I forgot what else, the other one he, that he did. The Rescue? Rescue, thank yes. you. Yes. Because there's a lot more bits to the story the motivation sometimes, mm -hmm. but again, there are some authors that go a little bit too far and kind of throw me out of the story. But I remember his very familiarly. I just thought that that one was really well done. Well, one thing I remember about the target novelizations, there seemed to be a running joke where type for 128 pages and then that's it. Now, they were limited. You, yeah, yeah, I mean, sometimes you got to novelize a six-part story, and sometimes you're novelizing a two-part story. Mm -hmm. So six-parters, you got stuff cut out. The rescue, uh, and uh, or any other two-parter, uh, you, you, it gets beefed out and fleshed out a whole lot more. It's like reading a director's cut, which is kind of cool sometimes. Well, Dan, Dan, I think we actually have John here who has a story about that whole limit thing. <laughs> yes. I was showing him one. I pulled up Wikipedia for some just technical stuff, and I showed him the line. That he's, you know, John Pierre wrote the Dalek Master Plan 12-parter, and it because of the limits, it had to be cut into two novels. And John basically is now going to fact check Wikipedia. Well, yeah, that's not true. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, guys, that's not what, happened. what what happened was I'd written the check when I wrote the chase. I said to them, "Look, I'm not doing a 128-page book because this is this is worth much more than that." And because it was a Dalek book, they said, "Oh, all right, yeah, okay, whatever you want." So I, I wrote that, um, whatever length it came out, it came out. And they said, yep, fine, okay. 
Um, they changed like three words in the in my manuscript. That was it. So it was great. Um, so when we came, they, then they called me up and said, "Well, we want to do master plan next." And I said, "Okay, there is absolutely no way this is getting the war games treatment. I'm not going to do it that way." I said, "We either have to do it as um, one really big book or two shorter books." And the editor said, "Well, all right, yeah, no problem. In fact." Um, you know that would, that would probably help us. So I said, "Yeah, okay." So she said, "Which would you which would you like? You know, the one big or two short?" And I said, "Two short." Um, so she said, "Oh, actually, that works well because we had a gap of a month on the schedule, so we could have, we could do them, you know, back to back, and everything." So that's why it became two books. So anyway, I called Terry, uh, called Terry Nation up, and I said to Terry, "Okay, we're doing the Dalek Master Planners." And I told him it, it could have either been one book or two books. So he said, well, John, why did you pick two books and not the longer one? And I said, well, two books, two advances. <laughs> and Terry just collapsed laughing. <laughs> He's laughing so much. And then he says, John, you finally become a real writer. <laughs> So that was why it's two books. <laughs> well, we, we now fact-checked uh, Wikipedia. There we go. We can always yeah. go back and rewrite the entry now. Right. If somebody yes. wants to edit from their phones. <laughs> well, one of the things that I really enjoyed uh, as I grew up and I learned more about the behind-the-scenes stuff of the show, I learned that a lot of the Target books had taken liberties with the original TV stories to give us more novelistic approaches. True story, when I first bought the David Whitaker Daleks novelization. Hmm. The first three, the first, it's told from Ian's point of view, and the first three or four chapters retell the origin story because they didn't have the rights to Unearthly Child. So there's a different introduction to the Doctor and Susan, and there's a whole different meeting. I thought I had bought the wrong book, so I returned it. <laughs> and it wasn't until much later that, oh, okay, that's what happened. So now I, yeah. that's the only target that I've had to buy twice. Not so proud of that one. Um, Marco Polo, for example. Robert was holding up Marco Polo earlier. I loved Marco Polo. As he, Look at me, I'm reading a book from the 60s, and I'm reading a historical that doesn't exist anymore. When you finally buy Marco Polo on audio CD, the soundtrack of the original TV episodes, John Lucarati changes the ending around significantly. So after the episode for Cliffhanger, nothing in the book happened on television. So that was a fun discovery. Um, just going down the line again, starting with John, what are some of your favorite or most unique embellishments or alterations from the original series to the Target novelization? Well, in my case, um, with The Chase, um, I, I had watched it when it was first on, so I, I had a long history with it. And there are lit there's some bits in the TV version that made me kind of cringe. Uh, and I, I was thinking, how am I going to tell Terry that I want to change his book? <laughs> you know. So um, I get the script from Terry, and I'm reading them, and I'm going, wait a minute, the bit that I didn't like isn't here. And I'm, re and I'm going, all the bits that I didn't like aren't in his script. Oh. And then I realized I, I hadn't got the shooting script. I got Terry's original draft scripts that were changed because they would have been so expensive to make, it would have bankrupted the BBC. Um, and I, then I, you know, I realized this, and I'm like, oh, I have a terrific opportunity here. 
You can because the chase still exists. People can watch the TV version of it if they want to. But here is what Terry wanted it to be before it was changed. So I have an opportunity to show everybody Terry's original vision. And that was wonderful for me uh, because he was just so imaginative and so much more detailed than the, um, the TV version. So that was a huge change for me. But it, 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 you know, I think I felt it was totally justified um, from a historical point of view. And there's no budget cuts when you're writing a book, so you're not worried about fitting your sets into little Lime Grove Studio D, and you're not worried right. about cheap props and costumes. I know, he did neither. I mean, there's one, there's one bit where Ian and uh, Vicky scrubble away the, the sand, and they realize they're on the top of this huge dome, and they look down, and hundreds of feet below, they see a city, a whole city below them. And I'm sure when the BBC saw, you know, producers saw that, they went, bloody hell, how are we going to afford that shot? How are we going to do it? Um, but Terry just wrote what he felt the story needed. And then Dennis Spooner came through and he goes, nope, too expensive, change it, you know. And you also had multicolored Daleks, which blew me away when I was a teenager, instead of the same monochrome that we get. Well, that, that comes from TV21. Um, there was a comic book in England called TV21 Weekly, and on the back page of it, starting with the first issue, was the Daleks. And they, because all monochrome Daleks would have looked absolutely ludicrous in a colour production, <laughs> they made the Daleks multicoloured. And I thought, this is so cool. You know, this, because they're black and white, who knows what they were, you know. And when it came to write, writing it, it was like, okay, now I can take the TV21 version and make it canon, sort of, um, which I thought was worked fabulously well. And going back down the line, Robert, what are some of your favorite targets that embellish or deviate from the televised story? Well, de definitely first is, you know, Remembrance of the Daleks, because like I said before, it's that whole bringing in the Cartmel master plan that, couldn't really get realized on TV. And we know a lot of that also went into a diversion novel, uh, Long Barrel. Uh, but, and Dan, you bought uh, Shada. And even though it's not a Target book, what I really liked and what I really admire Gareth Roberts for is he had to take a Douglas Adams script story. The great, you know, and we all know, you know, what a great author Douglas Adams is. Take what was filmed already, take shooting scripts that were probably going to be the next thing that were filmed and were pretty fleshed out, and then take, as John would say, like the, the, the first draft, right. where there may or may not have been revisions and definitely was not shot. And he had to come up with a complete novel based on what was there, what was coming up, and what might have happened. And I think he really did a good job. And, you know, he obviously probably took some liberties on what Douglas Adams maybe had originally attended. But if he didn't, uh, I don't think the story would have been quite as well well done. And I could tell you, when it came out, I'd have people ask me, what are you reading? I'm like, oh, this Douglas Adams story uh, called Shadow. And they're like, oh, I never heard of that. Well, if you watch Doctor Who, <laughs> you would know that Douglas Adams was a script editor. And this is one of his... Uh, now novelized stories. We have a question. Well, so I, I guess 
kind of more of a constant. Like one of my favorite embellishments is like it's stuff that just like you look at it and it's like objectively false. Uh, and like the Doomsday Weapon, it says that the Master and the Doctor are the only two Time Lords that left Gallifrey. It's like no, they weren't. But and then it makes you think. And there's another one I think is in the Three Doctors. It says that the Master was the only Time Lord the Doctor fought before he fought Omega. And it was like, okay, well, then, does that just mean the war chief and the monk? Does that just make them all the same person? And it's like, like weird things like that that just like change completely how you, you know, how you think about it. I would say Terrence Dix might not have known who the war chief was, but he invented the war chief. Yeah. <laughs> that was an unforced error. Um, Dan, your favorite embellishments from the targets? Oh my! Uh, as I said before, uh, uh, probably anything that uh, any of the two-part stories that got novelized, uh, since they were greatly expanded. Um, that's what immediately comes to mind, really, because uh, you just get a whole lot more to squeeze into a, a finite space of this, the 128 pages. I'm going to go back. Ian Martyr. Yep, yep. Funtarn Experiment. And the unfavored embellishments. Okay, in Rose, Russell T. Davis basically added a whole subplot revenge of, uh, was it Clint's wife? Going after the doctor because... Oh, Clive, right? Clive. Clive oh. Finch's wife, Carolyn, and her plans for revenge. Like, did we need that? Mm. And the poor Chinese tourists who were basically being killed or threatened and like, what did you need that whole thing about? Huh. So there, there's some embellishments in the newer novelizations. Like, uh, you got a little carried away there. Well, thanks to Daniel having brought the whole library, I'm going to read you out my favorite embellishment right now. <laughs> I love it when the authors start arguing with the production team in the pages of the book. <laughs> <laughs> Terrence Dix submits what became State of Decay for season 15. BBC is doing a high-profile adaptation of Dracula. They say, don't do this just yet. We don't want to take the thunder away from our Louis Jordan story. State of Decay is shelved. Christopher H. Bidney becomes script editor three years later. The cupboard is bare. He takes the story. He has Terrence updated. He rewrites it to make it a little more technical. Terrence did not appreciate the additions that Christopher H. Bidney made to his story. So as Terrence is novelizing the broadcast script, he decides to editorialize Christopher H. Bidmead's change. <laughs> Page 29. This is the novelization of State of Decay, book 58. Sorry, yeah, book 58. The doctor surveyed the extraordinary scene with delighted interest. Well, well, quite a technocothica you've got here. Doctor, whispered Romana. What's a technocothica? Well, I think it means a museum of technology. On the other hand, I might have made it up. <laughs> Christopher H. Bidmead added that word. You can imagine Terrence sitting as typewriter. That's not a word. And just say, say so in the book. <laughs> so, John, this is a loaded question because you already wrote five or six yourself. What is a TV story that you love so much that you wish you had written the novelization yourself? Not counting the ones that, of course, you already did. Oh, I would have loved to do um, Dalek Invasion of Earth because... Uh, I think that was the one story that really, really impressed me as a kid. I mean, it was just a tremendous story. Um, I mean, the Daleks here on Earth. I mean, <laughs> technically you're supposed to be in the future, but you know damn well it means now. <laughs> um, because, I mean, it was, it was so clear. It was, it was meant to be the present day. Um, and, I mean, that is scary. Having seen the Daleks in action before that, to see that. And I remember as a kid that one really, really... It didn't 
frightened me. I was just excited by the whole thing. So that would have been kind of nice. And um, possibly Marco Polo, because I love that story. That, mm. that one was just so brilliant. And uh, I, I was going around saying it was brilliant when all of my contemporaries were saying, no, it's a piece of cra crap, you know. Uh, <laughs> it was too long. I was like, no, it wasn't too long. <laughs> you know? I was arguing the merits of it. Um, and of course, we, we won't get anywhere until, or if anybody actually turns it up. But um, I, I thought it was just amazing. It was, it was the first show that made me realize that some civilizations on our own planet, some of our own world, is more alien than anything else. And that was a realization that came to me watching this, because I was thinking, this is just so out of my experience. So I would have loved to have done that. Robert, any book you wish you had written yourself? Ooh, that's a, that's a good question. Mm. I would have loved to done like a version of, you know, say Black Orchid, mm. which is one of my um, favorite Peter Davidson um, two-parters. Um, very well done. Um, probably I would have taken, a, you know, added some more like in the Sylvester McCoy area, Era, I would have loved to have done some of those stories, especially in the last season, where it had kind of a darker tone, um, and, and incorporate, you know, make the Doctor even you know, more mysterious by, again, adding elements of the Cartmel plan, which I think really would have taken the Doctor in a different direction. Some of the Sylvester McCoy novelizations are just straight up word for word adaptations of TV. So, Time and the Ronnie. Uh, Happiness Patrol, just straight up, no embellishments. But about half the McCoy books are double the length of some of the older targets, and they really go into a lot more detail, especially Battlefield, mm -hmm. uh, Curse of Fenric, Ghostlight, add a lot of context. And those were TV productions that were kind of rushed and missing a lot of scenes. The books are able to restore all that, so it's, it's a whole new ballgame. Mm -hmm. So going back down the line, Daniel, a target book that you wish you had written yourself. I'm not a writer. A book that would inspire, a TV story that would inspire you to become a writer so you could write the novelization yourself. I have no idea. I'm sorry. I'm rubbish at that one. I'm, I am so not a writer. Oh, fair enough. I'm a reader. I, I'm a reader. I'm a viewer. And I basically wrote fanzine stories for spin off, but doing the, somebody else's work is like, uh, you know, past. I will say when I was uh, 11, 12, and I had just become a fan of the show, I immediately created my own original character, the Doctor with the serial numbers rubbed off and the word TARDIS slightly rearranged and I basically wrote the five Doctors from memory with my quote-unquote original character. I wish I could find the notebook that I wrote that and it was awful but it was just basically the five Doctors as filtered through my imagination. Yeah. Um, if there was a TV story that I would want to start over and write the book when I was listening when I finally got the audio for Dalek's master plan. Obviously not to take away from John's books, which I've read over and over again. And I try and read them over 13 nights, stopping at the cliffhangers, <laughs> so I get the sense of reliving the original three-month-long serial. I had the idea for a short story written from Sarah Kingdom's point of view in episodes 11 and 12, which of course ends with her aging to death. Yeah. I don't really have the writing chops, so I never sat down to do it, but that's an idea that I always had. The last days of Sarah Kingdom. 
Mm. Probably very depressing, so <laughs> maybe it's no. just as well that I didn't do that. <laughs> ah. I, I, uh, I do have a, a bit of a memory of... It involved uh, Ian Martyr's novelization of The Invasion. Uh, flashback to 1993, um, I was helping to uh, organize a convention there uh, in Oklahoma when I used to live th in Oklahoma City, and our guest was Sylvester McCoy. Uh, in the video room, we, were, we had an overall theme, the cyber invasion of Oklahoma. So we're showing all the Cybermen <laughs> stories, and a friend of mine, uh, Eric Hoffman, he was able to provide a copy of the existing episodes of The Invasion. So I had this idea, well, I've got, uh, we want to do a full, you know, full showing. So I had this idea, why don't I transcribe uh, episodes one and four into a script and make copies of everybody in the, for everybody in the audience so everybody could have a part. And it went over pretty good. Uh, Sylvester wanted to play the part of Jamie. <laughs> so so uh, 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 it was kind of fun. Uh, not real, not really writing per se, but mm -hmm. uh, it was an interesting experiment, and people kind of liked it. And I mean, we're talking 1993, before DVDs. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not even sure if the invasion was even released on VHS uh, yet by that point in time, but it was kind of fun. Yeah, we've mentioned several of the great Target books and Target authors so far. Going back down the table, starting with John, what is perhaps a target book or a target author that you believe is underrated, that doesn't get enough praise or credit? John Lucarotti. Um, I, I've always liked his writing on, on almost anything. He's, I've seen a lot more shows recently that he'd written in other series and everything. And I think he's a very underrated writer. Um, his Marco Polo is very well done. His Aztecs is really good um, and you know he, he really I think he's he's some for some reason he's a neglected um, great I, I, I think he's far better than most people give him credit for his pro style is quite good too mm -hmm. I just I just read the Aztecs last week because the episode is coming out on my show next week episode 88 yeah so a lot of his turns of phrase I still have in my head very mm. descriptive writer that's yeah. a really good example you can really picture what he's writing I mean he, he's got that ability to put it in front of your eyes from the page and even though he did black and white stories he's writing the books in full color so you get a much better sense of what he wanted the studios to look like if there was money and color cameras and mm -hmm. not crammed inside of mm -hmm. lime grove d which is about the size of this room yeah <laughs> <laughs> robert uh, underrated uh, target yeah. book or target writer i i would say ian martyr uh, a lot mm. of people forget that our girl friend harry sullivan you know did as you said did some uh, really great novelizations like arc yeah. and space is another one um, mm. Actually, I think. Yeah, uh, the, the yeah. this uh, this is like more the original cover, and then when they did the reprint, they would do the blue. Mm. You can see how they did it. But yeah, and it's just mentioned. Uh, so w when you're the writer, you can kind of do your own adventure. Mm -hmm. So Ian did Harry Sullivan's War, yeah. mm -hmm. and that's something Target did. They did a few um, side. Uh, novelizations. Earthlink Dilemma. Earthlink Dilemma. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And then uh, K9 K9 and Company. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we forget that. And then um, that what they also did some other like Doctor Who quiz books, and so there was also they kind of like a different spin-offs, spin yeah. as we would call it. The quiz book of mm -hmm. magic. 
Yeah, but de definitely, definitely Ian Martyr. So going back down the table, favorite or underrated target authors or target books that we might not have talked about so far this afternoon? You already talked about the ones I wanted to see. I'll, <laughs> I'll give a shout out to two writers then. Nigel Robinson, who was the editor of the line and was really instrumental in getting these old 1960s and 70s stories adapted for the first time, also wrote the Doctor Who quiz book, which I... I wrote in my copy all the answers, and of course half of them are wrong, but this was a, this was a lot of fun to play when I was 11 years old. Uh, when Nigel Robinson adapted these stories, he would take some of the le least popular ones, and he would make changes or embellishments. So when he did The Underwater Menace, he gave it a new ending with a lot more impact, for example. That's one of the liberties he was able to take. Philip Hinchcliffe, who was Doctor Who's showrunner for three years in the mid-70s. He did novelizations of Seeds of Doom and Mask of Mandragora. It got to a point in the late 70s where the only target authors left were Terrence Dix and Ian Martyr. And you don't want to rely on just two authors for your entire full year's output. So the editors at the time started reaching out to other writers uh, to expand the line. So they brought Philip Hinchcliffe back to adapt The Keys of Marinus by Terry Nation, which he had no involvement in the production because it mm -hmm. wasn't one of his stories. So I had Philip on my podcast earlier. We talked about his first two books. That got him curious, so he read his book of Keys of Marinus for the first time in 40 years, having previously thought it was a terrible job and he had no fine memories of it. He was very impressed with his own novelization of Keys of Marinus because he had no recollection of the story. He said, well, this is a really good book. Yeah. So he came on my show a third time and, and, and talked about it. It's it's a really fun episode, him rediscovering Keys of Mariners for the first time in 40 years. So he no longer disowns it. <laughs> he did a good job. He did. Yes. Another one, he also is taking these black and white kinescopes and put them in full color. So it's a very descriptive book. Mm. Got about five minutes left on the clock. Anybody have any questions or comments or memories? <laughs> starting, <laughs> starting with Daniel. I have a question for Mr. John Peel. So, uh, 1993 rolls around, uh, the last few uh, Target novelizations had yet to be done yet, mm -hmm. um, but the style changed slightly for the final three, two of which you wrote. Could you uh, kind of explain that? Because it was done more, by that time, the new adventures were in publication by Virgin, and even though uh, Power and Evil are listed under Target novelizations, they weren't really target well they were when, when i started ah. <laughs> um, but the publishing scheme changed midway um i was uh, they were they were always written for um for peter Dial evans uh, peter and i were working on them all the time uh, but the nice thing about it was that they peter actually came out and said look forget the restrictions just write the book you want and that was lovely. Um, Peter and I got along so well. Um, in fact, I met him again for the first time in 40 years, um, just a couple of months back. And still as nice as ever. Uh, but yeah, that, um, what happened was, when I was doing those, then the writers of the other ones, the, the, um, the final McCoys, um, went, oh, well, if he can get away with it, we can get away with it. And, uh, and they wrote what they wanted. <laughs> And it, it really made the books change 
from very quick reads to a, a more insightful read, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not saying mine were more insightful, but I mean, the, the range became more interesting from that point. That I have a question for John about the power of the Daleks book, because mm -hmm. I had no knowledge of the TV serial at all when the novelization comes out in the early 90s. I had not yet seen the reconstructions or heard the mm -hmm. audio. It took me a while to realize you added a character to the novelization who was nowhere to be seen on television, <laughs> right. the Colony Doctor. Was that from Terry's original scripts, no. or was that a oh, sorry David Whitaker's, or did you embellish that on your own? That was that was something I added uh, for two reasons. Uh, first of all, I couldn't believe there was a colony without a single doctor in it. I mean, that would not make sense. Mm -hmm. And they on the screen they specifically say, "Go and wait for the doctor." You know, go and the doctor will see, and nothing happens. The, the the doctor never turns up. So I thought, well, I'm going to put that one in. And the second, more important reason, really, was that um, the only female character in the entire story is Janley, and she's a basically a bitch. <laughs> I, thought, I can't have a book where there are no positive female roles except poor old Polly. Um, so I added the doctor to make you know to uh, to counterbalance Janley a little bit because it seemed a bit lopsided. So that was entirely my doing, I'm afraid. I'm, I'm to blame for that one. <laughs> and was it your idea to put Harry Sullivan, I think Sarah Jane, I believe, in the in the uh, prologue to Power? Oh uh, yeah, power? That, that was just me being silly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I occasionally I, I put things into uh, my manuscripts, expecting fully expecting them to be cut. Um, I, ha I had one editor I would put horrible jokes in and she would just say, less jokes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so um, it, it started with the chase with, um, what's his name now? I've forgotten his name. That's crazy. Um, oh, Morton Dog. Morton. Morton Dog. Job, yeah. Um, and he was such an idiot character. I, I put in a line where he's... Um, He's sent to the Massachusetts State Home for the Bewildered. <laughs> that, that is a direct ripoff of Tom Lira. Because Tom Lira, does, who does the most incredible humorous songs you can think of, has a, a, um, a little skit where he mentions the Massachusetts home, State Home for the Bewildered. So I put that in. And I was sure they were going to cut it. And I'm reading the you know, published book and I'm going, oh! They left it in. <laughs> so after, after that, I put in little bits that, quite honestly, I often expected them to cut, and they never did. They, uh, you know, uh, over here, the one my, my publishers over here cut several things. <laughs> so, any uh, comments, uh, questions, memories out of the audience? We're just about our last couple of minutes. Just approach so I can get you on the tape. Last month, I walk into a small comic book show in Plainview, and somebody had a box of Target books. Oh. Basically, he said, what a collection of comics and Playboys. And the guy just threw in the books for no extra charge. And I found the Underwater Menace in there, which oh. I did not have. Nice. So I'll read it soon and find out how different it is. And that's coming out on Blu-ray very soon, yes. the animated mm -hmm. Underwater yeah. Menace. You never know where you'll find these books. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed it. Yeah. I, 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 I haven't got to I, it yet, but soon. Yes. <laughs> Anybody else with comments, memories, questions? Yes. I, I would say um, compliments to John Peel because 
you know, sometimes you, you have a few minutes, you just want to quickly read a Doctor Who book, you can pick up one of those later Terrence Dix books and read it in an hour. But just having that extra stuff and, and not having to visualize the black and white, you know, mm -hmm. you just not only color, but just the scope and everything. They were really enjoyable reads. Yeah. Well, uh, that's the great thing about a book. You don't have a budget. You know, anything you anything you can write, think of, you can put in the book. And I did that deliberately with the Dalek Master Plan. I mean, I put in Dalek Invasion Spaceship Fleet, you know. Wasn't on the TV, but it should have been. Mm -hmm. If they had the money, I'm sure they would have put it up there. Um, so, yeah. And um, as you're saying, so so many other little embellishments go very well in the in the stories because, you know, the BBC does have a budget. There's only so much they can do, but publishers, now nah, we can do anything we want, you know. <laughs> Hundreds of feet down to the city. Mm. Mm. <laughs> All right, well, everyone, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you, my Woo! panel. Next time on Doctor Who Literature, we will hopefully resume our regular schedule, assuming my voice returns with episode 88, Doctor Who, The Aztecs. Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Doctor Who Literature podcast. This podcast is produced by David Barsky, Jim Sangster, and yours truly. This week's episode was written and edited by me. Our logo was designed by Jim Sangster. The role of Jason Miller was played by Conrad Westmus. Special thanks to all the fans, authors and podcasters who chatter with me at Li Who. This podcast can be found on most of your podcast apps of choice. You can find all past episodes at Spotify at Doctor Who Lit. It really helps if you rate five stars and subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, that's DR Who Novels, on Mastodon at DR Who Novels at Mastodon.social and on email at Doctor Who Literature, that's DR Who Literature at gmail.com. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions and suggestions. Thank you for listening and whatever you do, keep turning the pages. Hang on a minute. Where are my lines? Oh, I haven't got any. I'm canon for God's sake. Honestly, Americans. Doctor Who Podcast Network.